You guys can have a seat. I hope you brought your journals. In fact, do this. Put your journal in the air and wave it like you... I'm just kidding. Do, put your journal in the air. I want to see if you got it. Cool. Cool. Thanks, Chris. Um, I was 10 years old, and I was visiting New York, the city, New York City. Uh, I had a few dollars in my pocket, so naturally I had to spend it. Um, and as we walked the streets, nothing grabbed my attention until I saw it. A handsome watch, the silver-linked clasp, the blue watch face, and most importantly, the tag Hoyer name. If you know watches, that should say something to you. It called out to me. I approached the vendor. The price was a measly $10 <laughs> this full. I couldn't believe it. Clearly, the vendor didn't know what he was sitting on. I didn't even have to haggle with him for the price. I hastily bought the luxury item, clasped it to my wrist, and proceeded to flaunt my style and sophistication for the rest of the trip. Oh, did you ask what time it was? Yeah, I have a little itch right here. You know, that kind of stuff. Because I needed everybody to see what I was doing right there. Now, needless to say, the watch stopped working within a month. At 10, I didn't know the difference between the genuine article and a cheap knockoff. I think this is what Paul wants to address as we open up to chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. Paul's central question, what we've identified so far, is what does it mean to be spiritual people? What does it mean to be spiritual people? In other words, what does it mean to be the genuine article? And how do we even know what that is? This question will be Paul's central focus as he answers what it means to live as spiritual people in each topic that the letter addresses, whether it's sexual purity, proper ways to worship, spiritual gifts, the Lord's Supper, resurrection, lawsuits, rights and freedom. There's a lot of issues in 1 Corinthians. And he's going to address each one of these through the lens of the gospel while asking the question, what does it mean to be spiritual people? Now, when we read the first two chapters of New Testament letters or of really any uh, uh, biblical material, I think we often have lazy, sleepy eyes. We think that the words are just generic greetings and some flowery language that's required for us to get into the real stuff of the letter that occurs in the later chapters. But actually with 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 set the stage for all that follows. Without them, we are left deficient on Paul's chief concern for the Corinthian believers, and that is live your life as a spiritual person through the filter and lens of the gospel. So Paul is now going to address what is the difference between a spiritual person and a non-spiritual person, and he's going to help us to know what characterizes them. In other words, how do they think? Not just what do they think about, but how do they think? What do they do? What are they like? So what we're going to do for the next couple weeks and for this week is we've been walking slowly through a paragraph at a time to discern and understand exactly what each paragraph is intending to say. Pastor's already talked about this in our previous sermons. When you rip verses, sorry, paragraphs apart into verses, 
You might lose the overall meaning that Paul is trying to communicate, not just Paul, any person in general. And so what we're doing slowly for these first four chapters is we're equipping you guys with some ability to look at paragraphs, understand what is the big idea. That way you can do it for the rest of the book in your own reading time. So I want to read these first five verses. And I want you to circle and highlight some specific words that we've already been asking you to look at. Words like speech, speak, and wisdom wherever you see them. This is going to be a topic that Paul clearly wants to address throughout the entirety of the book, not just in the first couple chapters, but this idea of wisdom and understanding and speech and speaking are going to show up all the way until chapter 16. Okay, so just keep that in your brains. We want to identify these moments to see what Paul has for us. Let's look at the first five verses in 1 Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in what? And what? And what? This is completely countercultural for a master orator to come in front of a people with fear and trembling and weakness. The Greeks prized great oratory skill. They prized confidence. And in fact, we saw already in chapter 1, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas or Peter. They were uh, uh, dividing the church, the members of the church were dividing the church around who could speak best, who had the best spiritual gifts, who was an important member in uh, the beginning of the founding of the Christian movement. And, And Apollos clearly is one of the best speakers that we have, and I think that's why they attach themselves to Apollos, but here we see not a dig at Apollos, but a dig at the Corinthians and the way they view the value of speech and speaking. And so what Paul says is, I've come to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Verse 4, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on what? Human wisdom. Again, That should perk your ears. That is Greek philosophical teaching right there. That's what we're talking about here. And not just for their own time, but also for us. But on God's power. Paul is recalling his one and a half years that he spent with the Corinthians. And in that time, the Corinthians certainly would have observed who Paul really was. He didn't come with eloquent speeches, but came to deliver the mystery of Christ. But I want you to recognize, and I think Pastor said this last week, it's not that Paul couldn't speak well. There's a moment where he goes to Mars Hill in Athens and he speaks to the great philosophers of the day. He clearly can speak well, well enough that they would ask him and invite him to come speak. He can speak to philosophers and great intellects. In fact, there's a moment in Acts chapter 26, verses 28 and 29, where Paul is speaking to King Agrippa. This is what King Agrippa says, Are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? Now, that's said in a little bit of derision, but also the fact that Paul has enough persuasion and ability to speak powerfully about the things of God. Agrippa has to say something. I love Paul's answer. It's masterful. I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with a difficulty, not only you but all who listen to me today might become as I am except for these chains. What a great master answer. Paul is quick on his feet. He's very smart. He can speak well, so why does he employ this method with the Corinthians? You have to remember, context, 
context, context. Paul specifically targets people to whom he's delivering the gospel. Whether it's the region of Galatia, several churches there, whether it's Ephesus or the Corinthian church or it's the Roman church, wherever he's spreading the gospel, there's a different method by which he delivers it based upon the context. Let me ask you a question. Does that change the gospel? No, it certainly doesn't. It doesn't change the gospel. It doesn't change what Paul is preaching. It doesn't change who Paul is. However, if you want to be effective in ministry, knowing the people to whom you're speaking is vitally important. So Paul specifically targets them with this strategy to be in stark contrast to the Greco-Romans world's model of speakers, philosophers, and orators who come with these eloquent speeches and fantastic deliveries. Because these deliveries would sweep people up into the message and would bring them along for the ride. Paul didn't want to do that. He wanted the power of the cross and the power of Christ to stand by itself. You know why? Because the Spirit is ultimately what changes people. Not great words. The Spirit is ultimately what guides heart transformation. Eloquent words and fancy speeches are great. No problem. But they cannot replace the power of Christ in each person's life. And without this power, the cross is emptied of its effect because are you following Paul, Apollos, or Cephas or are you being transformed by the Spirit? This is why Paul comes with fear and trembling and weakness. Without God's Spirit, we would be able to accomplish nothing. We would have no guide and no partner to direct our decisions, our attitudes, and our actions. Without the Spirit, we would not be able to impact the world for the mission of God's kingdom so Paul's emphasis when he was with the believers was God's power. I'm going to say it really nicely. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. But the spirit directing a person's life is real purpose and real power. And actually, God is on display in you when that is a reality. So let's look back in verse 1. There's this word that has messed with me and maybe has messed with you as you've read these chapters this past week. What mystery is Paul announcing? What is this mystery? Paul uses this word, this phrase, mystery, 21 times, not just in uh, Corinthians, but in all of his letters. So it's not just contextual to the Corinthians that we're talking about the mystery, it's contextual to all followers of Christ. It's something we ought to know about. Now, before I answer that question, because I have done the study, I can't answer the question, let's keep reading to see if some context will give us the answer. This is another great reading skill that we can adopt. When we have a question about what we're reading in certain verses of the Bible, let's look at the other verses surrounding it to see if there is an answer for us. So let's continue on, verses 6 through 9. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have what? So what is the hidden thing that Paul is talking about? It's the cross. It's Christ. It's Jesus crucified. We have an answer here, and I'll I'll back that up with some more information. Let's continue on verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those 
who love him. You'll notice in your journals that this is a uh, bolded black spot. The text is bolded in black. Um, There's a reason for that, because Paul is quoting some Old Testament stuff here. Now, before we address that, let's talk back about this mystery for a moment. So what is this mystery that Paul is proclaiming? It is the gospel. It's God's plan. You'll notice the the specific words in verse 7, God predestined before the ages for our glory. This is God's plan to send Christ into the world to create the possibility for man to have a relationship with God, just like we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's God's plan to cut covenants with Abraham's family. Wasn't that song amazing that we just sang? Oh my goodness, I heard claps and cheers, and rightly so. What was that song called? Promises? I don't know if Jeremy's in the room. He can confirm it or not. Promises. We all need to look up that song this week, learn the lyrics a little better, because I had no clue, and listen to it and sing it with gusto next time we do it, because that was amazing. It was God's plan to cut covenants with Abraham's family, making them God's chosen people who represent him on earth. It's God's plan to create a new covenant in Jesus' own body and blood, and this new covenant requires a sincere faith and trust declaring that Christ is Lord. Now all people, not just Abraham's family, can enter into a covenant relationship with God. These new people, that's us, anybody who has a relationship with Jesus. We are now new people. We are a new humanity modeled after the true human Jesus Christ. And one day, when Christ returns, he will reunite heaven and earth in his fully realized kingdom, and we will reign alongside of him. This plan was made plain to the apostles. And now to each believer who calls Christ Lord. Colossians 1, 21 through 23, and then verse 26 will, will prove what I'm saying here. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, that's sin. But now he, Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Then jump to 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to us, to his saints. The prophets, they foresaw this mystery unfolding, but didn't have this full revelation of Christ until he physically came. So this mystery that Paul is talking about is no longer mysterious to us. It's no longer a mystery. It's no longer hidden because Christ has been revealed. And the truth is that the Spirit has opened our eyes to then respond in faith and join this covenant family of God. And now us, this new people, this new kingdom that we live in as citizens, claim allegiance to Christ alone. This is the mystery that Paul speaks about. So anytime now you're reading your New Testament and you run across the words mystery, now you have a very rich understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate. Now I want to look back in verse 9 here. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. But Paul isn't just slapping on some, you know, some like, required uh, references, some, some required scholarly references from the Old Testament. Um, who's ever written a paper in here for school? How many references did you need for that paper? At least two, I would imagine. At least two scholarly references in that paper. 
Many of the students in here are like, you know what I'm saying? You can't use Wikipedia, by the way. You have to use a scholarly reference. And this is not Paul just saying, okay, well, I have to get required references into the thing, so here, let me just slap a thing on the page. That's not what he's trying to do. He's actually employing this Old Testament passage for the purpose of what he's trying to say. Here's the problem, though. When you rip verses like this quotation out of context, Pastor was sharing with, uh, uh, with me about his past and what people have done as far as preaching these particular verses uh, as he was growing up. People have made this verse about heaven. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived. God has prepared these things for those who love him. And certainly, out of context, I could think, this is about heaven. God has prepared wonderful things for me, but unless I know the context of Isaiah chapter 64, I won't ever understand how Paul is trying to use it, and then further how I can then apply it to my own life here thousands of years later. So one of the things that we have to do as good Bible students, we have to put our nerd glasses on for a moment, and we have to go back and do some study. We have to look at Isaiah chapter 64 and understand what uh, Isaiah was trying to say in order for us to understand what Paul now is trying to say. And when I rip verses out of context, I can turn the Bible into anything I want it to be. It can be a weapon. It can be my own personal log of what I think God should be, and I create him so from the verses that I pull out of context. This is not how the Bible works. What the author said to his audience meant one thing. The Bible can't mean something to us that's different than what it meant to them. Does that, does that make sense to everybody? Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 4. You can't just look at the one verse again. You've got to look at context surrounding. Let's see what, what uh, is happening here in Isaiah chapter 64. If only you would tear the heavens open and come down. So the mountains would quake at your presence just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that the nations would tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works that we did not expect, you what? Came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From the ancient times no one has heard no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for God, one who waits for him. These verses from Isaiah in context have nothing to do with heaven, do they? They're all about God coming down and intervening in our situation. They have nothing to do with heaven. It's all about God's initiative to come and rescue his people for those uh, who act, sorry, uh, no, I have seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. God shows up. God came down, and we have no clearer picture of that than Christ. So if I take these verses out of context, all of a sudden they can mean something that Paul never meant for them to say. But when they're in context, what Paul is saying is this mystery, this wisdom that nobody understood, that nobody could see. It's kind of like what Isaiah said when God came down. Nobody was looking for Christ. Nobody expected Jesus to come. Because if they had expected him, then they would never have killed him. It's exactly what he says in verse 8. So 
we as good Bible students, we have to understand these verses in context where they were originally placed in order to understand how Paul uses them in order for us to understand what Paul is saying at all. No one was looking for Jesus. And in fact, they thought it was wisdom to crucify him. That would keep their status quo. That would keep them in power. It would quell a, maybe a rebellion by these crazy Israelites who believe this weird stuff. Yet God turned the worldly wisdom into foolishness. He says, this is not real wisdom. He turns it for his own purposes and uses it for our benefit. Now you see why it's so important for us to look at these Old Testament quotes and understand them. Whenever you see bold in your First Corinthians journal, make a note of that. Go do a Google search, look up those words and find out where they're coming from. Read the whole chapter to understand what Paul is trying to say. Now, this furthers this contrast between wise and foolishness. This furthers the contrast and it further pushes us to rely on the Spirit which illuminates us to the truth. So Paul will continue on in verses 10 through 14. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given us by God. I want you to go back and circle wisdom and speak, and then I want you to double underline, star, put it in a box, draw arrows to it, put a target next to it, whatever you do in order to understand some stuff. The words, so that, in verse 12. It's going to be important. Now, the Spirit enables us to know and understand the things of God. I was, um, I was looking at something that Rachel was doing for her grad school stuff, and it was a statement on biblical inerrancy. And one of the things that it said is, is that we deny, we deny the idea that you can't know who God is because our language doesn't understand him. I get the idea, I get the principle, God is un, unknowable in some sense. We can't know everything about God. We can't 100% understand everything that he does or what he's about. However, he has chosen to reveal himself through what? Words. Through language. So yeah, you may not be able to know everything about God, but you are able to know some things about him. And he has revealed himself. He is not completely unknowable, therefore we don't try to read the Bible. He is knowable precisely because he speaks to us through his word. So the Spirit enables us to understand these things because the Spirit searches the deep things, the depths of God, and reveals those things to us. Paul will then go on to answer what it means to be a spiritual person here in a couple of verses. But in order to be a spiritual person in the first place, we have to first be partnered with the Spirit. Because the Spirit knows God's mind and wants to impart God's mind into us that we might have a deepening relationship with him. And not just a deepening relationship where it's like, oh yeah, I like you. Now I begin to live like Christ every single day. This is why one of the, uh, not just one, but several of the spiritual habits that we teach in uh, discipleship, 
one of the disciplines that we look for, is daily prayer and Bible reading. Now, what's the purpose? Is it just to make you feel good for the day? Well, that might happen. There's nothing wrong with that. But is that the purpose of daily Bible reading and prayer? No, the purpose is to align our hearts and minds with God. From the truth of Scripture, the Spirit will guide our steps forward as He lives and He directs us. Ultimately, the exercises or practices are about mindfulness and about presence. Mindfulness and presence. We want to practice these because we want to fill our minds with God's Word. And we want to fill our moments with engaging with Him. This being with God being mindful of him, thinking about him, constantly talking to him, learning about him as we read his word. This will flex our discernment. I mean flex, like that. Don't look at my muscles, but yours. You know what I'm saying? Look at Kurt Wilson's muscles. He's got the muscles. You know what I'm saying? Flex is our discernment to live as he commands. Now I want you to go back to verse 12 here. And this is the point of the whole thing. So that we may, what? Understand what has been freely given. The Spirit gives us understanding. The Spirit gives us truth. The Spirit resides within us. We have the presence of God near. And not only his presence, but his power and his purpose. And here's the thing, he doesn't hold back. As much of the Spirit's connection as you want, you can have. God is an inexhaustible source of truth and joy and love. And he will partner with you as much as you are willing and able to do so. I think sometimes we ask questions like, why, God? Or what was that about? Or how? We ask those questions, and I think God might send those right back to us sometimes. I think he'd say, you have the Spirit. The Spirit searches the deep things. The Spirit knows my mind. Therefore, you can know my mind. Verse 12, so that we may understand what has freely been given. We all have this ability to know about God, to understand things about him and understand things about myself so then I can adopt what he's about into my own life to live it out. We all have this ability to evaluate between right and wrong and make choices that will honor God. I think we've so relegated spiritual things like into this realm of impossibility. Like we miss that our everyday lives are opportunities to be filled by the Spirit and to live out what he wants for each one of us. And because of this imagined separation in our minds, we feel incapable of living for God to the point that we don't even try. It just seems so other. It seems so out there. But the verse says, so that we may understand what has been freely given. What has been freely given? His spirit. And his spirit gives us truth. And his spirit gives us wisdom. And his spirit gives us power. And his spirit puts us on mission, gives us purpose. Now, Paul's going to continue to contrast worldly wisdom with God's wisdom. There are so many ways that the world tells us to live to think, what kinds of attitudes to adopt, and what we're supposed to value. 
But for the follower of Christ, our values, our thinking, our attitudes, and ways of living must be informed by who? The Spirit, by Jesus. That's exactly right. Without the Spirit, we will not be empowered to live as Christ called us to. If we are to image Christ, to be his physical representations on earth, then we have to have the Spirit empowering our thinking, our values, and our actions to be in step with the example of Jesus. And this is truly the spiritual person. Okay, let's keep going. Remember to keep circling your words here in verses 13 through 16. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. Let me pause there before I keep going. Love your enemy? Seriously? That's what one of Jesus' core teachings. Love your enemy? Don't worry about tomorrow? Be anxious for nothing but in all things? Pray? That's silly. That is foolishness to the world. But to God it is the wisdom that he wants us to be empowered to live by. Verse 14, But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate what? how many things? Everything. And yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone for who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Circle that, bold it. Again, put arrows all over it, flag this page, write it in big letters out to the side, whatever you want to do. But we have the mind of Christ. Now, I do want you to mark that quote over there. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Again, you're the, in verse 16, those are the uh, bolded black words there. That's Isaiah 40:13. I don't have time to redo that same exercise. We'll probably do it on the podcast this week. But I do want you to underline, highlight, bold, whatever, the mind of Christ. And I also want you to underline spiritual people and spiritual person. Uh, Both of those are in verse 13. These together, the mind of Christ and spiritual people, show us what a spiritual person actually is. The spiritual person is the one who has adopted the wisdom of God. Let's, Let's go back a little bit. What was the mystery? The gospel. What is the wisdom of God? It's Christ. So what is a spiritual person? What is the wisdom of God? A spiritual person is the one who has the mind of Christ. A spiritual person is one who has uh, started a relationship with Jesus. That is what it means to be a spiritual person. And so what is it to have the mind of Christ? Well, it is the way that Jesus views the world, the way he thinks about things, what he values, his attitudes, his outlook and expectations, his reactions, his emotions, and his convictions. Again, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this in the podcast this week, but that is what it means to have the mind of Christ. The spiritual person will look at the example of Christ and evaluate what he thinks, will evaluate what I value, how I feel, what sort of attitudes I have, What are my outlook and expectations? And if they don't line up with Christ, then who's in the wrong? 
I am. Who needs to change? I do. And that's, that's tough. Because oftentimes I think it's easier to make Jesus say what he doesn't say in order to make me feel better. But that's not what the Bible is all about because that's not the genuine article. The genuine article is one who looks at the mind of Christ, adopts it, and then changes to reflect it. I want you to circle the word evaluate in verse 15. The spiritual person will be able to evaluate these things because the spirit, big S, spirit, is in them. The spirit will help decipher and discern what God wants. And when it's unclear to our spirit, small s, you'll notice that in that paragraph, Paul uses a couple uh, different ways for the spirit. There's the spirit, Holy Spirit, big S spirit, and then there's small s spirit, which is talking about us. When it's unclear, what do we do? Well, we do our best. We evaluate the situation through prayer. We read God's word. We talk to our trusted advisors and mentors, and we try to make the best decision that honors God and others. But I think this is exactly why Paul contrasts worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Because sometimes we think we are living godly when really we're not. Which is why we need the Spirit's indwelling power within us. We need the Spirit in order to live by God's wisdom. So we don't make decisions that the world deems good or wise. We make decisions that honor God. It doesn't stop there, though. We don't just know things about God. We actually apply them. We do what Jesus did. Look at his example and try to imitate it. So it becomes the spiritual person's job to practice learning and understanding and making decisions that reflect and honor what God really wants for each one of us. This is going to take self-evaluation and self-assessment and self-reflection Because without taking inventory of yourself, you won't know where you need to adopt the mind of Christ. The more that I get confused and think that my life is simply, or the things that happen in my life are simply because of these exterior circumstances or these exterior forces, the more that I think that everybody else is to blame and I have nothing to own, the less that I can pull out of a situation and look down at it and look at other people's perspectives, the more that I'm going to narrow myself into what I'm about rather than what God is about. God wants us to be self-aware. He wants us to think about our actions, think about what we think about. He wants us to assess ourselves, to use Paul's word, to evaluate ourselves. Because without taking this inventory, there will be no potential to make a game plan where I'm more mindful of the Spirit as he develops new habits and new disciplines within me that keep in step with what he is all about. Because when we do that, when we're saturated in God's word, partnered with the Spirit, praying and being mindful of God, our own spirits will begin to make decisions that align with what he's about. I don't know how this interaction works where the Spirit of God interacts with my spirit. I don't don't know the function of how that works. But I know it does, and I see it happen when I'm less angry in a situation that I used to be angry about. 
I know it happens because there are moments where I'm thinking about things and abruptly it stops and I think about calling somebody and asking them how they're doing. I know it happens because I've seen the fruit of my own life where what I used to be is becoming less and less what I am. Anybody else? I would sure hope so because that's the spirit indwelling within you, interacting with your spirit to make decisions that honor God. Now here's the problem though. Most of us think that being a spiritual person involves something very specific that has to do with religious activities. Like sharing the gospel or baptizing somebody or, you know, hours long prayer time or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. That absolutely is a part of being a spiritual person. But for Jesus, I think it just meant to live every day. Being shaped by the Spirit's influence. Being shaped by God's word. It means that you go about your daily tasks at home, at work, at school, wherever you are, wherever you are, doing it with the Spirit in your mind. We did an activity during the discipleship series just a little while ago where you guys texted in, what is Jesus like and what did he do? And you came up with great answers. What is Jesus like? What are his attributes? He's kind. He's compassionate. He's loving. He's kind of funny, right? Uh, you, you come up with this, this whole wonderful list of characteristics of Jesus. And then we ask you, what did he do? Yeah, we know he walked on water. We know he did miracles. We, we know that he healed sick people. We know all that. But what did he do in between those moments? He traveled. He cooked breakfast and dinner. He went fishing. I mean, doesn't that kind of sound like, oh, he went to people's houses to have dinner? Doesn't that kind of sound like what you might do during a normal week where you're not shut in because of the snow? Yeah, you travel. You do your normal tasks at home and at work. You go to people's houses to have dinner. That's what Jesus did, but within those moments, he infused them with purpose and meaning. And he did that because the Spirit was enabling him to see beyond himself and to act as the Spirit guided. Have you ever gone to a checkout stand at Walmart or Target, wherever you shop, and it was just like the best experience ever? Some of you are like, never. <laughs> I've never, never experienced that. Well, I have. I've been to a Walmart, and it's been a, a, a really, like the shopping trip was horrible. Um, but when I got to the cashier, it was great. I mean, they were smiling. They were having conversation with me. They were like genuinely interested in what I was like doing that weekend or whatever. They encouraged me while my kids touched everything. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, it's COVID time. You can't. So my kids are touching everything, and the Walmart cashier is laughing and giggling about how cute they are rather than you know, giving them the sideways look or looking at me in, in judgment or whatever. They were attentive, and they were patient with me as I said, uh, I don't really like that after all. Can you, can you put that to the side? I don't really want that. They did their task with excellence. They created an open and relational environment by making the most of that moment with me. What are our lives supposed to be but that? God isn't asking you to go and baptize your coworkers tomorrow against their will. He's not asking you to go and lay hands on them kind of in a creepy way and pray with them without asking. Because those aren't the only spiritual things that spiritual people do. 
Spiritual people live their whole lives, every moment, infused with purpose and meaning, being guided by the Spirit. So this is our challenge. It's to adopt the mind of Christ. This will distinguish us as the genuine article, not a cheap knockoff, who says I'm a Christian and does nothing about it. Because being a Christian isn't just doing spiritual churchy things. Being a Christian is having your whole life shaped by Jesus. Emulating his example, imitating him. You don't need to be flashy or showy. There was nothing flashy or showy about taking a case of water to someone's house this week. In fact, it's kind of dangerous if you think about it. Nothing flashy or showy about that. And for the multiple people who were on Facebook who were asking that, there were other people who were behind the scenes texting people. There's nothing flashy or showy about loving people well. At least there doesn't have to be. Executing your your tasks with excellence, creating relational environments, looking for opportunities to bless people and care for them, that happens or can happen wherever you are doing whatever you're doing. Here's the key, though. Are you empowered by the Spirit? Are you evaluating your moments and infusing them with that meaning we've talked about? Are you exerting God's truth into your situation? Are you soaked in his word to the point that it becomes a part of you? We can't be this genuine article if we aren't practicing this partnership with the Spirit every day. We can't adopt the mind of Christ without the Spirit who actually knows God's mind. We can't be spiritual people without the Spirit. I mean, duh. It's in the word, spiritual. So this week, I want you to do a couple things. I want you to repeat the phrase, but we have the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. Sometimes that's an affirmation, like, yes, I do. And sometimes that is a call forward. Sometimes when I don't feel it, when I'm not living it, it's powerful just to repeat the words of Paul. But we have the mind of of Christ. Repeat those words over and over. I want you to live as though the Spirit has something for you in every moment. Yes, while you're doing the dishes. Yes, while you're driving to work. Yes, while you're doing your menial and trivial tasks. Yes, while you're praying for someone. Yes, while you're trying to share the gospel with a coworker. In whatever you do, there's a moment for the Spirit to have something meaningful for you. It won't happen in an instant. It happens as a result of the practice of mindfulness, the practice of connection with God. So what does it mean to be a spiritual person? It means to reject worldly wisdom and to live by God's wisdom. What is God's wisdom? What is this mystery? I'm hearing some whispers. The gospel. It is. You're right. You whispers. You're right. It's the gospel living my life through the lens of the gospel is what makes me a spiritual person. That's how I'm supposed to live every single day. But we have the mind of Christ. Can we say it together? But we have the mind of Christ. That's your call this week. That is your challenge to infuse your moments with meaning. Now for your reading this week, 
I want you to choose one of our tiered options. If you don't have a whole bunch of time this week, read chapters 3 and 4. Just, just familiarize yourself with it so that you are ready to come to learn. You're ready to hear the devotionals that will go out this week. You're ready to be a part of the conversation on the podcast. Read it this week. If you have a little more time and a little more ability to sit down and, and read, read chapters 3 through 4 every day this week and then make some notes. Jot down some questions. And then would you text those questions in to 817-809-3040? He's not in here to tell me if I'm wrong or right, so... It'll go up on the screen if it's wrong. 817-809-3040. Text that number. I think you might have it written on your journal. You can look back and find one of the slides that has it written there. Text those questions, and we'd love to answer those specifically on our podcast or one of our devotionals. Next option, the third tier, is to do option B, plus read Job chapter 51, sorry, 5, verses 1 through 17, and Psalm 94, 8 through 23. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? Those are the Old Testament quotes that are in chapter 3. And what I want you to do out to the side of those Old Testament quotes is write down the big idea of those particular quotes. Job chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, and Psalm 94, 8 through 23. Write out the big idea after you've done uh, the reading for the day. Final tier. <gasps> We're adding a new one for you super awesome people. The next tier is to do option C plus to memorize 1 Corinthians 3.16. Okay? Here's what I want to do next. I want to actually do this mindfulness thing I've been talking about. I want to spend some moments in prayer. I want to spend some moments asking God to, to indwell us in a new way this week, to empower us in a new way, for us to recognize the fact that God is there with us. All it takes is for us to recognize it. Because again, it's freely given. Spirit is not withheld from those who want it. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for your spirit. I'm so thankful for this wisdom that you've imparted to us. It's not worldly wisdom. In fact, it seems foolish to love your enemy, and to not be anxious about stuff. But that's exactly what we're supposed to be. I pray this week that you would empower us, that you would help us to recognize your nearness and your closeness. We know that you're here. We know that you're with us. We know that you live within us. Help us to recognize, realize, and open up those channels of communication with you to become mindful of you because in being mindful of you, we'll experience your presence. And when we experience your presence, we'll experience your purpose. And there is the power of God. Move us to be on mission this week. Help us to remember that in our normal, everyday lives, whether it's a small task an unimportant one. Whether it's normal stuff we do at, we, at work in the week or if it's normal stuff we do at the house, help us to be mindful of you and to recall these words, but we have the mind of Christ. What I'm asking for your mind to be in each one of us, what you value, what you find important, what you think about, 
your emotions, your reactions, your convictions, your outlook and expectations. I pray that we would see those and then begin to adopt them into ourselves. Because when we put your mind within ours, you've promised that we will be transformed. Help us to practice our reading this week. Help us to practice adopting your word into our hearts. Adjust my attitudes. Adjust the way that I'm living and the way that I'm thinking to reflect you. And I pray the same over our people. Where I fail and where we fail. Help us to be quick to ask for forgiveness. Help us to not run from your presence because when we run, we miss out on what you have for us. Help us to seek out for you, to search for you. Because in that, we will find what you have for us. Spirit, be near. Convict us and move us forward this week. Challenge our hearts.